Today's episode is brought to you by the Vegas Beer Guys and the Sounds and Cinema Podcast. Everything sequel contains explicit language. And why the fudge not, you melon farmer? Hello and welcome to the Everything Sequel Podcast. This is the Omen Edition. Very exciting. My name is Michael Schantz. I'm from the How Dare You Awards. Joining me, the man trying to kill me with his mind or his dogs or his birds, Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions. What do you got to say for yourself, Tom? We are now about to enter a highly experimental area where the use of toxic chemicals we hope will one day feed the world's hungry. (laughs) I am reminded of two instances. The first, as (laughs) it will not surprise you, Terry Silver in Karate Kid Part 3. And I remember the Rift Tracks version of that film. Uh, which you can watch online, um, at the point at which Terry Silver talks about dumping toxic waste, one of the um, commentators, uh, <laughs> one of the commentators remarks, "I have come to a conclusion. This man is the villain." <laughs> the second instance is the great Mitchell. The great and and please look this up. This is on YouTube as well. The great Mitchell and Webb sketch where the German World War II soldiers, one turns to the other and says, are we the baddies? <laughs> to which the other soldier says, no, we're the, we're the heroes in our own story. And he says, yeah, but look at the, look at the guys on the other side. They don't have skulls on their caps. <laughs> and I hate to say it, but if your plan involves toxic chemicals or toxic waste... You, to you, help, you're the villain, to help right? feed the world. You're you the villain. Are the of villain. The <laughs> <laughs> What's quite interesting is up until that point, uh, Boyer, uh, as as he's called, um, I I thought <laughs> that there was a possibility he might not be the villain, and then someone mentioned <laughs> that toxic chemicals are part of his plan. I was going, okay, I guess that, I guess that's I decided now. now. <laughs> it's a bit of a foregone conclusion at this point. Oh, man. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking, with this unwieldy title, we're talking Damien. Well, that was an appropriately unwieldy intro. Yeah. (laughs) From both of us. (laughs) Damien, Omen 2. Yeah. Just sounds weird. Uh, This movie is directed by Don Taylor. I don't know. You might not know Don Taylor. I know Don Taylor. (laughs) We know him... All too well. <laughs> Let them know, Tom. What do we know him from? Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Yep. And Magnum Force. Yeah. He is probably... Did even I more... mention before that he also did the final countdown? I think so. I thought that was kind of fun. For our purposes, though, I think even more than Irvin Kirshner, he's the quintessential sequel auteur. Yeah, right. Um, And I don't think it's a coincidence that there's a lot to say in this movie about <laughs> sequel surrogacy, sequel surrogacy yeah. as there is to say in Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Right, yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, when you get your hands on one William Holden, yeah, that's a coup to start with. Well, it and and it's in, it's it's interesting. Lee I guess, Grant I guess too. It, I mean, come on. Well, I guess since we're talking about it now, yeah, I can I can lay the groundwork. I mean, this this film makes no bones, as with Planet of the uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, right? About the fact that that they the cast for the sequel are surrogates for the cast of the original. Sure, right. I mean, the first time they're introduced off screen, they're referred to as his new parents. <laughs> so there's a clue. They go through the motions that, that um, mm-hmm. William Holden goes through the motions that Gregory Peck did in the original film. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I was interested to find, you know, I suspected while I was watching it that, you know, there's there's an there's an alternative reality in which William Holden was um, Gregory Peck. Yeah, right, right, right. The, the, right. And uh, I, I suspected that I was watching it, and then I found out he was the original choice. Choice <laughs> exactly. for for um, for the Omen. Yeah, for the Gregory Peck role. So but didn't he have a conflict or something, and that was the only reason? I can't remember. But it's it's so interesting. It's like retroactive surrogacy. Right? Yeah. It's like who do we get? Well, let's get the guy we were going to originally hire. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and once your first film's a huge hit, you know he, he he's yeah. going to say, "Hell yeah, I'll do it." Yeah, absolutely. So that is it's uh, it's that kind of on the nose sequel surrogacy that that um, that we're used to from Don Taylor. Yeah, exactly, and because uh, uh, we had a lot to say about James Franciscus being the uh, the the Pepsi Charlton Heston. In, yes, uh, of course. Of <laughs> but what I also find interesting that's coupled within this this idea is that this is an aftermath sequel, but yes. also kind of a remake. Very <laughs> much. Like you yeah. said, William Holden is going through the exact same thing that Gregory Peck did in the first film. Yeah, and that that is also true of Beneath the Planet of the Apes, and yeah, so right. I think I think there's a lot to learn about the art of sequel filmmaking from from Mr. Don Taylor. Yeah, but I, and you know what's interesting too is that this is an aftermath sequel, kind of, but it also takes place years later. Well, it's I mean, I, it's I think we talked fiction. about yeah, we talked about that <laughs> in our ranking episode. That one of the things that these sequels have going for them is they. Well, it goes for them and against them because there's yeah. a time lapse yes. for the characters, but not in the real world. <laughs> well, in the I real this, world, I, it's, yeah. it's, you know, the normal kind of amount of time between sequels. What so, it allows you to do is to age up Damien. Yeah, right. Which is, is a, a big reason why these films are, uh, work so well. Mm-hmm. But what you lose is, is kind of... Uh, historical reality i guess yeah, is the best right. way to put it because once you get to the final conflict damien this is basically the clinton era that damien yeah, is yeah yeah exactly is in, he, right. you know in in the real world in our in our timeline damien would be speaking to bill clinton in, in that scene where he goes into the the of old course <laughs> and so they'd it's be talking about and cigars and and dresses and maybe that answers the question we posed in the ranking episode as to why why do why don't sequels do this more with aging up the cast? It's like because you've got to leave seven to ten years between your films, which right? Economically, is not a great idea. It's, it's not a good model. No. <laughs> well, you got to boyhood it. Yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, this movie, it's a relative, not a hit, but, you know, this movie did relatively well. I mean, it, it only has 46% on Rotten Tomatoes. Mm. Oh. I think that's Ooh, a little damn. low. That's, uh, does it, yeah, I mean. There's like a sequel bias, I think. Yeah, you know, yeah. You know, there, there is, from, there from is critics, that. I think and, there's a. Yeah. A bias against sequels, but on a budget of six point eight million dollars, only an opening weekend of three point eight million, but in the USA and the world, twenty six point five. So hmm. it's not the I smash mean, def- hit that Omen was, but it makes some money. No, but I mean, it, you know, I, I it's cinematic comfort food at least for me. And yeah, I think that is that is that is less appreciated in critical circles than it should be. Right, you know, right. I, I I remember when when I was at college, I went to a uh, a lecture by the um, the esteemed film critic V. F. Perkins, and you know he was talk he was uh, he was talking about a film called an anthology movie called Oh Henry's Full House, mm-hmm. and he said, you know, we have we have aesthetics of quality in film studies, but what we don't have is an ex- an aesthetic of the quite good. It's like this film is, you know, it's like that's the best way to categorize this film. The performances are fine, right? You know, (laughs) it's very watchable, but like, there's nothing we can do in criticism to sort of like rationalize and quantify that. And Mm. I've been fascinated by that, especially as I get older. And that's kind of really the only film I want to put on. It's something that that is comforting. No, Uh, more than it, comforting more than it is good. And this fall, this is right in that wheelhouse for me. Absolutely. Well, and I think... Yeah, we, you, you don't want to poke too hard at, at why you're enjoying this film so much. Right. Because <laughs> it unravels. And we talked about this, I think, at length in, in, the, in our ranking episode about yeah. how delighted I was by all three of these sequels yeah, when they... I wasn't really sure that I should be, but... There's... Well, they've all got something to recommend them. Yeah, I th- yeah, right. And they're all and they're so you know... different from each other. Oh boy, boy, are they? Yes. You know. Um, so, yes. And I, you absolutely. know, I think I think we have to start right at the top, because for those that are paying for our Patreon, you might be listening lately to some <laughs> Superman episodes, including Superman the movie. <laughs> I love the way your voice changes when you start to, to advertise the podcast, the, 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 the monetized version it's of the podcast. It's a little gentler. I know, it's like you go full on, uh, you know, uh, pharmaceutical commercial. Yes. But one of, the, one of the only reasons that Richard Donner, who directed the first movie, Omen, or The Omen, mm-hmm. did not direct the sequel is because he was knee deep in Superman shit. And they took his name off of the second movie and hired another director, which I think is pretty funny. Wait, wait, you're talking about Superman, right? Yeah. Okay, because th- that that <laughs> there is a Superman two type dispute about the directors of this movie. That's true, right? Two entirely separate directors, yes, Tom Taylor and, and Mike Hodges. Um, Mike Hodges, who started work on this film and was and was released early on. And they the kept uh, they kept scenes that Mike Hodges had directed. So, absolutely, you and, know, and I gave, think probably on posters credit. it was yeah. Don Taylor. But if you look on uh, like an IMDb, it'll list both directors. 
I would hazard a guess that the entirety of the cold open is is Mike yeah. Hodges. Yeah. I I don't know if he was I know, I don't know if he was filming uh chronologically, but but it, it literally looks like once the credits roll, it, it's someone else's film. Mm-hmm. And yet everything before that is as a fan of Mike Hodges, looks like one of his movies. Did you like the cold open? Loved it. Best yeah. part of the film. Me too. <laughs> not to say that the re- not to say that the rest is a washout. No, yeah. Easily my favorite part of the film. I was very surprised because I I think I was saying to you just off air. I was I was. I was re- I was reading my notes that said heavy music coming in hot with the serene setting of Israel. Yeah. But then you have this car chase essentially, well, but l- it's l- a well, one okay, jeep, I- it's a one jeep car chase. I I'm going to I'm I'm going to, you know, I'm going to rewind just to point out. Yeah, go ahead. At least on my at least on the HBO Max version which I of this film that I watched, which I believe you watched as well. Yes, correct. Untouched late 1970s 20th century logo yeah and that does a lot to for the cinematic comfort food aspect oh of yeah film. <laughs> yeah and if, but of course you know we talked before about how lucas had to insist they put the fanfare back in mm-hmm. and in here you can see what it looks and sounds like without that yeah. so it's like you're, you're like you're glad you're getting the real thing but actually the real thing was a modified version of the real thing in the late 70s sure that that you know, unless you're you know hugely successful uh, filmmaker, you, you <laughs> there's no you just have to you just have to toe the company line and do without the big fanfare. Right. Um. Also, the 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 opening. I mean, you mentioned the dramatic music. This put me in mind of um, Eddie Izzard's uh, routine about how you know you're in a high end horror film because mm-hmm. when it starts, all you hear is choirs of children. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Whereas like the like, like the B movie version of this would always start dun 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 uh-huh. dun 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 dun, dun. Yeah. Um but every time but when it's expensive it's <laughs> At least with the Omen films, I mean that is that is thematically on message, right? That's that's the, the, and they the don't... thematic significance. Quite right. you know, children and religion is at the heart of these films. So and they don't waver from it. As many choirs as you want. Yeah. You know, it's funny because one of the problems that they apparently had, especially for the first two movies, The Omen and its sequel, one of the problems they had was the idea, apparently, of just making a child scary. Which I oh. found interesting because so many people find children inherently frightening. Maybe that's post omen. Maybe that's yeah. maybe our our uh, our thinking about that is shaped by the omen films. Maybe it prior could to be that, children were were serene. Um, <laughs> children, <laughs> children were non-threatening. Yeah, and the um, other thing, one of my other notes that I found really it's delicious. Like Jaws and sharks, right? Everyone yeah, that's was true. With sharks right until Jaws came out. <laughs> I don't know if they were fine, but that movie said fear them forever, and everybody yeah, said yeah, okay. Yeah. And uh, one of my notes was the same thing happened for this movie, just with the name Damien. Once that movie came out, nobody would name their child Damien anymore. And not just that, there's a British sitcom called Only Fools and Horses. Have you ever heard of that? 
It's pretty, it's, no. it's, it, it doesn't have international rec- recognition, but it's like an all you know, it's a hall of famer in in Britain for sure. Uh-huh. And uh, they um, at one point the main character Del Boy has a um, has a son, and he names him Damien. And every time they cut to the baby, they have the theme from the Omen, and then like a <laughs> like a sl- and it turns to slow motion. So it, it, it so not only is what you're saying true, it became a running gag in the sitcom. That's great. It's, it's like cultural consciousness is 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 to the point where you could make it a runner in a right. running TV show. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Well, uh, one of the other things that I found interesting in both this movie and the movie that follows it is this through line of the priests and knives. Yeah, exactly. I was just going to say priests and knives. The knives are the driving force of the, of the knives. The knives are the through line narrative, right? Yeah, right. The the trilogy arc is basically following. We follow the knives wherever (laughs) they go. The knives have a character arc. They do. They have the most character development. Yeah, it's great. In all of these, in all of these films. I mean, you mentioned that it starts with this, this kind of. Uh, well, it, it it it's filmed like a car chase, but there's only one car. There's yeah, exactly. Two. It's a it's a one jeep car chase. <laughs> one jeep car chase. Leo McKern rushing to somewhere which when he gets there you realize he didn't need to drive that fast i don't know if we had to i don't know if we had to drive that fast this is my note and it's such but it's such an attention grabbing opening yeah i mean it's and it's so well shot and it's yeah i mean yeah the attaching the camera to the car is such a good idea and that's why i think it's mike hodges because there are similar shots in get carter Mm mm-hmm not to mention that the guy he's going to meet is the. Second, I forgot to mention like that second... he did the original Get Carter and. Yeah, Lee, Lee Henry. You gotta love that. Um, I know that Lee you Henry's would. Lee Henry's Michael is basically the the second build uh, um, with Mike Michael right. Payne and Get Carter. Um, also, this guy seems like an early draft of Indiana Jones, doesn't mm-hmm. he? Yeah, totally. He's an archaeologist and a fortune hunter rolled right. into one. I mean, <laughs> George Lucas and Spielberg are taking notes when they saw this film. Absolutely. Uh, I, and I, I, have mean, a, I, I have a note here that says that the actual cave-in, to me, was some phenomenal work. Like, I, it looks so amazing. And it really sets the tone, isn't it? Because I think, I think the, the, um, the key to this movie is taking those act of satan accidents mm-hmm. that kind of tie the first film together and not only having several more of them right a film but also raising the stakes on the kind of disaster level uh scale of them yeah right like the i don't think we had anything in the first film that you know was was kind of a cave-in like this. This is like a no, straight out right. of the disaster movie. I mean, the most spectacular Which was also popular at the time. Yeah. And in the first... The, exactly. And, the, yeah, as we've talked about with the Superman movies, everyone's kind of... Every big movie is leeching off the disaster job yeah, in some right. way. But in the original film, it's all a series of quite small accidents that are more about body horror, right? The, the, yeah, because the, the, the biggest one you get is the mirror cutting the head off. Yeah, or the, uh, not the mirror, but the plate glass window. Yeah, and there's an equivalent moment in this yeah. movie of that. But around that, um, much really bigger like scale, 
disaster style accidents. There's also, I, you know, got it, it gets overshadowed by the decapitation, but Patrick Troughton getting the getting impaled mm-hmm. um, from the uh, the church spire. The church, is, yeah, uh, is equally as good, I think. Um, so, uh, but also the fact that you know you you're back with a legacy character and actor, Leo McKern. Mm-hmm. The film is making out that that he's gonna be the new David Warner for this movie. Or mm-hmm. he, right. He's going to be the, he's going to play a large part in the story. And of course the first, pretty much the first thing that happens is he's killed off. Right. As is this entirely new character. Yeah. Who, who we, we, we've spent a lot of time getting to know and is then instantly killed. But I like that. I like that. I, sort I think of the fate subversion, is worth it for you know? the fake it's, out. Yeah, I right. don't know if it's worth losing those two actors and those two characters so early on. All right, uh, it's yeah. definitely worth it for the fake out quality of this is going to be your film. Oh wait, it's going to be an entirely different film that takes place <laughs> seven years later than this. <laughs> well, because we like this moment so much, and because we're also talking that we think Mike Hodges directed it, I just also want to say up front, Mike Hodges also. Flash Gordon. One of the greatest <laughs> bad movies yeah. of all time. Love that movie. Yeah. So much I, so I, it was I, a teachable moment for Lady Chu on the How Dare You podcast. Absolutely. And you know, <laughs> not enough and certainly not enough people have seen Get Carter uh, that yeah. deserve to. It's We're not talking with Sylvester well, Stallone, by the way. No for once <laughs> we're not talking about Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> Um, but that's one of the greatest gangster films of all time, I think. Yeah, I just rewatched uh, that uh, within the last couple months. Yeah, it's it's spectacular. Um, but now that's that's the end of that's the end of Mike Hodges in this movie. That, <laughs> I think so too. Yeah. Now um, here's a here's an interesting note I have. I want to ask your take on this. Yeah. The producer Harvey Bernard. Uh huh. Because Saint Bernard. This well no, but this is the this is the thing because this is so counterintuitive to how all sequels are. His mm. quote for these movies was that you need to tone sequels down, not up. <laughs> He's not following his own advice, is he? <laughs> well, I think he is, and he isn't because uh, well. Uh... Where is he toning it down, do you think? Well, I think what I mean is... All right. Yes, you're no, right. tell me. I'm interested to know. Well, you're right in the sense of, you like, like those... those uh, the devil is working against you moments. There's more of them. Yeah. You know, in this movie. And there's some huge set pieces, like you said. There's yeah. the, the decapitation of the head equal in this movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, on, if I'm being honest, I think that's the moment I fell in love with this movie. Oh wow, yeah, it's a great moment. Because I just think it's fantastic. The waist slicer you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've already done the head. What can we do now? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think, and I'm thinking maybe more of the next sequel a little bit more. You know, where you're having these long soliloquies. Hmm. In darkened rooms and and <laughs> oh, the amount of silhouette in the final conflict is yeah, right, <laughs> all time high. I think, 
But I, I don't get the sense that there's this, uh, you know, I'm thinking of whatever, the, the things we have today with Avenger movies and... Mm. I was re- recently rewatching uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, and you mm. could just feel how set-piece heavy it is. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. And I don't get that sense in this. You have some set-pieces in really here. That's a really But there's still that's story really in between, and those moments oh, are quiet. Yeah. And there's, there's still really character development, and there's still yeah. things of interest going on. So I, I do think that, to a certain degree, these movies do tone down some. They... They they don't feel like, I mean, look, it's a horror movie, so there's going to be spectacle, but it doesn't feel like they're relying on spectacle. No, I, I yeah, I think that's a really good point. And you've seen the the Omen more recently than I have, but mm-hmm. I get the sense that some of the, um, some of the biblical, uh, undertones are played down a little bit for this in this film. Mm-hmm. Almost to the point where it gets so repressed, it explodes in the next movie. But yeah. I, I, you know, I, I had quite, had a lot of fun like teasing out the the um, biblical connotations of some of the scenes. There's a there's a really great one right. early on when William Holden is giving his kids money before they return to military school, and it feels like like you know that this is a sort of a uh, like a church PSA video, <laughs> and at this point, it's going to freeze frame, and then someone's going to walk across the screen and let's see and say, "Spare the rod, spoil the child." You know, it's that kind of <laughs> right. But it's not laid on too thick. Like in the next movie, like any time, like they can't just do the Abraham storyline. They have to talk about how it is the Abraham storyline. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this film, I get to make the connections to biblical teachings. Right. And I feel like that's another... I, I, like, I don't know how it works in The Omen. I, I don't remember The Omen being um, particularly less subtle than this movie. But no, certainly yeah. here, I feel I feel like there's a there's an undercurrent of religiosity. Yeah. That will, that is that is is kind of nicely woven into the story. And they don't have to keep throwing it they don't have to keep throwing it onto the surface to show you like a like a seal no but i did we talk about this did we talk about in the ranking episode that for for whatever reason that kind of delighted me in the next film too like i yeah it didn't bother me it didn't detract yeah but it feels more like religious filmmaking it feels more like oh for sure but here it's more of an undercurrent see the last frame of the film you're also dealing with you know, it makes sense for the characters as well because no one's supposed, no one <laughs> apart from one of the parents, which we'll get to later on, mm-hmm. it doesn't know that he's that Damien is the Antichrist. Damien doesn't really know he's the Antichrist. So it makes sense that when you do have these moments where you're engaging with Bible verses that it's under the under the radar a little bit. Sure. Because the characters yeah. are not acknowledged. It's very much an unconscious uh antichrist for most of this film and yeah and for the characters <laughs> yeah exactly yeah so i mean we kind of open up after 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 we have the the cold open yeah you know we open up on a family dinner and oh, yeah. aunt marion is there aunt marion Sil- uh sylvia sydney 
Yeah, Phenomenal she's performance. Well, fantastic. And, this is great. And, and it's another thing, kind of like the two actors we were, you know, for the cave in. It's it's this thing where she comes in so hot and heavy, you know that Damien like you know, <laughs> you're gonna be a goner. But, but, but I was sorry not, to see her go. It's not well uh, that too. Yeah, it's not straight. It's not as straightforward as you think it's gonna be, because. Damien is introduced to us almost as the moral center of the family, right? Yeah, right. He's, he's better than his adopted brother because he's nicer to Aunt Marion. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, he he's he he makes an effort with her. And Aunt Marion's right about Damien, like her instincts right. are right. But she's also being a complete hypocrite. So we're unsure where our sympathies lie. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that's... That's interest. That kind of nuance is interesting in a film you're making about the, an- you know, the Antichrist. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> you know, you you you're already empathizing with Damien in a way that you don't expect to, and also the people who are fighting Damien are not morally clean cut either. Well, and it kind of, I mean, at a certain point, it runs counterintuitive to the first film too. I mean, mm. when when you first meet Damien. At his youngest in the first film, he's very, you know, smiley and impish. But at a certain point, you know, he's running yeah. big wheels around and knocking people over. <laughs> you know, he, we're, we're, yeah, and, we're and doing kind of the point, zoom in to yeah. his angry, I'm going to kill you right now face. And mm-hmm. I like that sort of inversion of this movie where you're expecting Damien to kind of be clued in to his devilishness for lack of a better word and like you said he's the one being nice he's the one making effort yeah exactly and you know there's a uh, for at least half of this movie is a sense that the antichrist lives within him but he can also kind of turn it on and off yeah almost like the that you know the the soundtrack of the choir you can just (laughs) you can just when, whenever that comes in, he's he's the Antichrist. The rest of the time, he's Damien. And there's a sort of sense of... You spend the first half of the film going, how much does Damien know about how much he's the Antichrist? Yeah. And that's, well, a, and but th- that's, that's a good thing for the film. Like, I think yeah. that adds a layer to it that is that, that makes it very compelling. Well, plus, I mean, this would be skipping ahead. We'll get there. But there's a moment later in the film where he realizes what's going on. And his reaction yes. to it is very interesting. Very interesting, yeah. yeah. And, you know, by the time we get to the next film, he's resolved whatever yeah, conflict, right, in a exactly. conflict he had. And it's somewhat, I mean, at least, at least I think, somewhat less interesting. But it also means you can drive forward with the narrative more easily. Yeah, right. Um. But all that work is done of internal conflict is kind of done in this movie. Yeah. Uh, so it's a necessary evil. <laughs> Pun intended. Pun intended. That's great. Uh, yeah. And this, you know, I think I talked about this in the ranking episode, but, you know, the, the, the you, you can you can use melodrama you uh, as a compliment or an insult, I think. <laughs> Right, depending on who is doing the melodrama, right? <laughs> doing yeah, the melodrama. Yeah, yeah. So when I say that there's the that you know the dinner scene is full of melodrama, I mean You're not wrong. You know, I'm not wrong, <laughs> but it's you know it's but the people doing the melodramas, William Holden and Sylvia Sidney, yeah, 
And so, you know, I'm using melodrama in the sense of Kirk Douglas at the bottom of the stairs in The Bad and the Beautiful, you know. These people come from the golden age of film melodrama, mm-hmm. and they know how to do and it. And they know how to do it, right. And that's why they're there, because otherwise... Well, and it's, it's why it just, works. It, it's just pure schlock, right? It's pure, yeah. pure schlock and soap opera. But they, but because it's being done by this, these actors, it's dressed up in a way that it looks almost artful. Well, and plus, there's something interesting happening within the script because there's that portion with Aunt Marion or Sylvia, mm-hmm. Sylvia Sidney as Aunt Marion because she's taken a huge leap in logic yes. and we're not sure how she got there. <laughs> but that shortcut, well, I mean, yeah. one, it just helps with push the narrative forward. Yeah. But it's also, I think it's cut. I think it it makes that whole scene kind of light up and makes it interesting, because you as the audience member are kind of on the parent side. You're on William Holden and Lee Grant's side, Mm -hmm. wondering, well, how did she get there and what the fuck? But behind that, you know, she's right, (laughs) because you've seen the first movie. Yeah, yeah. But she's. You also know that she's not. You know she's right, but you're not necessarily on her side. You're not on her side, and and you and because you, we get information that she's that she's not a reliable witness, right? Yeah. So you've got the extra added layer of she's the, she's the woman screaming, "I'm not crazy," right? In, yeah. It, which just makes her sound more crazy. <laughs> and then wakes up dead. <laughs> and then, <laughs> yeah. So this is a this is a pretty amazing kill count, right? If you've right. This film yeah. so far. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Ten minutes in. Three in the hole, a few minutes into the movie. Um, well, I, you know, since we have three dead, why don't we take a break and then we'll come back? Yeah, that's, that's where we go. <laughs> oh, we, this is just the beginning. Yeah, for sure. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we'll take a break and we'll come back and talk about more death. <laughs> right after this. And fire. Yeah, plenty of fire. That's later, but. All right. I like to think I know something about beer, but nowadays even I get overwhelmed when confronted by the exhaustive selection of craft beers they have at bars, breweries, and even grocery stores. Back in the day you had one, maybe two craft beers to choose from, and if you were confused, you ordered a Guinness. But in beer stations like San Diego, the craft beer options lately are in double, sometimes even triple, digits. So what's a beer drinker to do? You need what I need, the Vegas Beer Guys. Your beer of choice should be a perfect blend of malt and hops. And so a live show about beer needs that same balance. And the Vegas Beer Guys matches beer expert Dan Aker with self-proclaimed beer novice Stephen J. Weiss. The results are eminently drinkable. They're on Facebook. They're on Instagram. They'll try new beers. They'll tell you about beers. Think of them as your beer sherpas guiding you up a foamy-headed mountain to reach the peak of your pint. God, I need a beer. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen. Tom and I are here discussing Damien Omen 2. Directed mostly by Don Taylor and somewhat <laughs> by Mike Hodges. That's uh, that is that was stand up in court. I think. That's yeah. 
Uh, isn't it sometime right around here when we find out about the feeding of the people? The feeding of... The... That's what I have in my next notes. Like that Thorn Industries, that that's their goal? Yes. Yeah. I, I put here... One of my notes here is like, eh, this is like a lot of detail. Is this ever going to play in? Yeah, right. And I guess it kind of does. Well, um, I mean, they're still talking about it in the next movie. Yeah. At the time, I'm thinking, I, I want to be, I want to know more about what's going on at military school. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, yeah. one of my notes is because he meets who we know as the great Lance Hendrickson, but he's Sergeant Neff. And you yeah. kind of have this sense, I at least I did watching the film, I had this immediate sense that Neff is the new nurse. Yeah, well, yeah, he's definitely a Satanist. But it it what what I like about it is it it seems both overt and never said. Yeah. Yes. You know? And for some reason this film gets away with it and I don't think the next film does. The next film I'm going, okay, who thinks right. what? Yeah. But somehow in this movie I just I don't know, maybe it's better filmmaking, but it, it, it doesn't it doesn't bump me in the same way. Is there um, a moment, by the way, with the two brothers that you feel like there are accents that fall in and out? Well, Damien has a British accent. Does he always, though? Well, he grew up in London, yeah. right? So so he, my, my feeling is they, they remembered that. And so they didn't have any problem hiring a British guy to mm-hmm. play the role. You know, think again, think of Superman 2 with the the the, the British child in the middle of Yeah, right. The in the middle American of Midwest. Houston. Yeah. Or wherever so they were. So the fact that they have this excuse in their back pocket. Yeah. <laughs> I think they were just like, "Great. Yeah. If we've got a British kid, put him in there." Yeah. Um but it's it's very strange because you know, he left London at exactly the point at which it would have shaped his accent. Well, so my note was, I say, have to ask he should Tom, sound like he's, yeah, because he's the resident British person on the podcast, and I couldn't yeah. tell if accents were falling no, in yeah. and out. He's definitely British adjacent. And I couldn't tell if his brother was trying to put on a British accent as yeah. well for no reason whatsoever. I think that was yeah, the thing that, that confused I... me the most. That I can't can't put together. All right. Um, so I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel like this idea of Damien infiltrating the military. Yeah. It's sort of something you couldn't do pre-Watergate, like for an, like the the audience. It's like it feels like with this, the audience is this is the you know the peak of paranoia, paranoic filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And we're just sort of like, we 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 accept that our institutions are infiltrated by the criminal element, like right to the highest level, in a way that perhaps pre-Watergate an American audience wouldn't. Because it's not a big, no one is, they're not acting like it's this huge subversive thing. It's just like, yeah, sure, yeah. Military, military school, yeah. Yeah. I didn't think about so, it for a single second. Is this even? Because isn't this post Watergate? Yeah, no. That's what I mean. It's like it, it, it. 
but it's so it's post post Watergate. Oh, okay. So, like, we've had the older president's men and the the kind of you know the the conspiracy stuff, and now it's just like, yeah, sure, he's infiltrating all institutions at the highest level. Yeah, yeah, that happens. We know. All that right. Happens. So, because I thought you know when you first said that you couldn't get away with this pre Watergate. Yeah. Right. Right. Like it would seem like an affront. I, I invert. I, I yeah. I, yeah. I, I, now you've I, got when you when you do stuff like this on film, you've got history on your side. You're like, right. well, what about Nixon? It's like okay, yeah, fair sure. Let's move on. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I would have gone to that lengths just because, you know, it's a military academy for kids. How many of those? Yeah, are but there? the people who graduate for there are going to be. Yeah, that's true. Joint chiefs of chiefs of staff. I mean, that's very much the implication. Right. Um. So so he's because ba- he's basically got. You know the. Between the government, the government hierarchies and corporate hierarchies, he, Damien is effectively in charge of America. Yeah, right. And, the and well, you know what's interesting because, <laughs> the movie's nineteen seventy eight, mm-hmm. is that, it it feels, it feels like it's predicting Reagan. Yeah, because it's set. It, it, I mean, it, you know, it's it's historically set in Reagan's America before they knew what right. Reagan's America was going to be. Uh, yeah, but if you look back on it, you wouldn't notice the difference, right? You wouldn't. You <laughs> right. wouldn't be like, yeah, exactly. This is a prophetic. You wouldn't call it. You wouldn't say this is prophetic. You just assume it was made in like eighty three or eighty five, mm-hmm. and then you'd go, yeah, yeah, sure. This is this is right on the money once yeah. again. Um, and I, I mean, mean the, the spect. I mean, you know, if you think about Reagan, Reagan's political ambitions, and you know how much probably in '78 it's a foregone conclusion that Carter's going to do one term, and that the next guy is, and that it, the next guy is going to be an ultra conservative, right, to restore the political balance. Um, probably not that too hard to figure out that we'd be mired in a conservative nightmare by the. The mid eighties, right? <laughs> Although I, I do, I do think that you know, weirdly, the stuff that Boyer is doing with toxic chemicals, trying to feed the poor, seems like a Jimmy Carter kind of plan. Uh, I don't think he stopped short at the second you say toxic chemicals. Exactly, yeah. I don't think Carter the, would stand up, for that. Up until that point, I thought this character was representing, you know, li- the the kind of Jimmy Carter-style liberalism. Mm-hmm. So, that's, that, I think that's, you know, that the Carter era is also built into into this, but they're, sure, yeah, looking, right. lo- they're looking ahead in a way that, that anticipates Reagan as well. Hmm. Meanwhile, Damien's. Uh... And you know, historically, I, I remember, I seem to remember that it was sort of a foregone conclusion that Reagan was gonna, yeah, at least campaign for president as soon as he, uh, um, upstaged Ford at the convention, um, convention Republican convention in seventy six. Six. Yeah. Anyway, Karen. Yeah, that I mean, you know, that happens a lot. I mean, the same thing happened with Barack Obama. Yeah, and there's even a um, there's there was a great clip on one of those CNN decade documentaries. I think it was just in the in like a post credit scene of um, 
them trying to figure like after you know bush win uh, bush senior wins the election they're like well who have the democrats got and someone goes there's this senator called biden and the, and now all the commentators go oh come on he's never gonna get it. <laughs> right, yeah, right. uh <laughs> but meanwhile in our film damien is yes. mind throwing bullies yes and we didn't i didn't mention the moment that he walks there's a shot of him walking not through fire, but in a shot that's designed to make it look like he's walking through fire. Like, that's the introduction to Damien, the first time you see him. And again... Oh, like, I'm not remembering. Yeah. You and mean again, before like, dinner? Or Yes. Oh. The very first time we see him, he appears with flames in the foreground. Okay. And it just reminds you, it's like, the production and casting is elevated, the content is not. Yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Anyway, that, that, that's good. that's going back, but yeah, I, I know. Well, I but this mind that. throw is interesting to me because it kind of it harkens back to what we were saying earlier because Damien doesn't seem to know the extent of what he can do. He can, and he can sort of turn it on and off like Carrie's telekinesis. Yeah, right. And that, I think, is part... That is kind of the... I mean, I, th- I remember it's the fourth film where they go to town on the Carriness, but... It, they're responding sure, sure. to that here, I think. And also, you know, De Palma is also Hitchcock through the back door, so it's kind of like they're both, they might also be both pulling from the same source. Yeah, true. The, the next, uh, next note I have is about the reporter. That's what, that's who, what I was going to say. Yeah, there's just a one random the reporter. Who what happened in the cold open. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she's already putting it together, right? She's like, there's like a chain of satanic mishaps. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that need addressing. <laughs> and then something something in, in, in these scenes that just, that all, I always think, this only happens in films. Having a surprise present that involves a satanic artifact. Right. And people going, how could this possibly go wrong? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Yeah. But that's where the the seven-year time jump works for the film, because this reporter is plausibly putting the pieces together, because it's been seven years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if this was all happening right after the you know the um the tomb collapsed sure it would right seem, it would probably seem like we're rushing to conclusions but she's like no i've been working on this for seven years and you're like okay fair enough that's yeah, enough time right. to that's enough time <laughs> to establish a connection right absolutely <laughs> but that's one of the benefits of time jumping yeah exactly even if it messes other things up even if it means it makes your films a piece of science fiction yes yeah right and then, of course, she get like, what's funny uh, is anybody that. Speaking of Hitchcock. Yeah, that thinks for a moment, you know, three minutes later, we're going to kill. Like, this movie is killing people at such a rapid pace. It's introducing a, people and killing them eight minutes later. The last thing you want to be in this in these films is someone who has information about Damien. Yeah. <laughs> Once you have that, that's it. You're, You're done. fucked. Yes. <laughs> Now, what do you think of the substitution of crows? Actually, I should say crow, 
because it's like a yeah. single crow that Just attacks one. the reporter. But right. uh, crow for dogs, because we go back to I... dogs in the next, you know, movies. Yeah, no, I think I. Um, well, let's uh, let credit where credit is due. The crow and the truck are working together. They're a team. That's true. <laughs> yes. Um, I like it because, obviously, you know, it's a homage to the birds. So yeah, you know, this film is aligning itself to the very best horror films. It also, it <laughs> it reaffirms my um, contention that. Every film post early, every horror film post nineteen sixties is either Psycho or The Birds. Can be yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> um, but again, you know, it, it marries the body horror and violence of the original with this newly added disaster movie element. Because she gets so, launched up right, like yeah. into the truck. Just, just so, like, I appreciate it from all those angles. You know, yeah. I, I think it, I think it's a really a really strong sequence, but. You know the way you frame it is absolutely right. It's like, what other animals can we, uh, can <laughs> yeah. we have? I just thought it was or... interesting because this is the only movie that decides to go non-dog. Yeah, well, I'm obviously in favor of that. Um, I'm also pro crow, so I'm a little bit conflicted. <laughs> but I understand why. Like I, you know, always my thing with with dogs and especially Rottweilers is, you know. Having owned them, I'm like, there's nothing scary about them. Yeah, right. To me. But uh, crows, even though I love them, and, you know, there's a bunch of crows in the tree outside my place right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I get why they're I, I get why they're scary. When you see a bunch of them together, it's... Uh, Not just that, but that crows, apparently, you know, crows really can problem solve. Crows are... <laughs> what does that mean? What does that euphemism mean? <laughs> Crows are, crows are, I was watching a special about crows and they're super smart. And like, yeah. if you have to go through nine steps of things to like get the treat, they'll problem solve until they figure out how to do all nine steps. Yeah. So, so, in, in, so it, it makes of, sense that they could plan murders together. So somewhere <laughs> Satan has a treat for this bird. And yeah, right. He's like the nine steps are mauling this woman, making her go out into the road and get run over by get a truck. Get run over by a truck. Yeah. Here's your Makes pellet. Here's <laughs> <laughs> your pellet. That's worth at least two pellets, I think. You're right. You're right. He's working solo. <laughs> and I have a note here because the character of Paul, Robert mm-hmm. Foxworth, we, you know, it's kind of the same thing as Sergeant Neff. We get the idea that he might be a protector and a Satanist too, like for the first yeah. time around now. Right. And again, it's a, it's a difficult situation because he he's seen, you know, his his plan to feed the world is seen both to. You can't figure out whether the status quo are not approving of it because it's too liberal. Mm-hmm. Or too conservative, right? The guy who keeps blocking him seems like someone who could equally be blocking it because it's progressive. Yeah, right. As someone who's blocking it because he's using toxic chemicals. Sure. I mean, we know that it's an evil plan. I don't know if this guy is blocking it because it's an evil plan. And I'm trying to remember. It might is just it... be that he's an old, crusty Republican who doesn't it, want anything. Is it Alan Arbus that doesn't want anything to do with it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Passerian? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
from so, Mash fame. He's Sydney. So again, that's like a that's like a nice wrinkle mm-hmm. of ambiguity to the story that that makes these scenes more compelling than they might otherwise be if it was clear. Yeah. If it was clear black and white morality on both sides. Because um, Paul is sort of really really selling the idea that that this is this is going to be so, an agent of social change mm-hmm. and it makes you think that that the guy above him is like that's what he's stamping down on <laughs> i don't know <laughs> right. that's what that's what i thought anyway it, it it feels it feels muddy in a way in a good way where you're like you don't know who to trust. <laughs> mm, buddy. You don't know who's the hero of the story. Yeah, and right. That's great in a film. And I do. I actually, that's one of the my notes for this movie. I this movie kind of keeps you, like I said before, it seems overt, but you also wonder, am I on the right track here? Sometimes, like with the nefs and yeah. the, you know, and I I do Definitely. like that aspect of this movie that you have this sense that that what I like about it is it gives you this sense that there is a whole network of people working yeah. in concert or for Damien mm-hmm. and Damien is un, un, doesn't even know this. Yeah. And, and this is only confirmed in the next film when we yeah, see it right. in one, it, it in, feels, in one place. But it feels it feels insidious. It's really unsettling. Yeah. And for a horror it is, movie it, it, it works is. great, you know? It does, it works really great. Uh less less great uh, Bill under the ice. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes when the death scenarios get so elaborate, they right. start to become comical. And I think the moment at which they're chasing a drowning man under the ice. Well, because it, it it's also like, it's shot it feels a little like awkward. Like a Mel Brooks film at this point. Yeah, it's shot a little awkward too. Yeah. Where it's kind of like, I don't know. It 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 feels like it's some sort of game. Find find well, exactly. the man Once under they the start ice. Chasing him under the ice. Yeah, right. It loses all credibility. Right. So I think their ambitions are just a bit too high. In the at this point, to, is that is the ice part the, the part? Danger. Is the ice part the part in which William Holden begins to kind of suspect? Mm-hmm. Right. Oh yeah. 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 Um. It's at this point I started to wonder if too much of the satanic plan is being enacted, other than than by those other than Damien. Mm-hmm. A lot of this is taking place in a part of the film that Damien's not in, but right after this, as like almost like a lead-in, almost like the film seems to know when you're gonna, when you need Damien to recognize his agency. That's, mm-hmm. that, that's exactly what happens. Yeah, right. We have his kind of coming of age. He learns his origin story. He sees the 666. Yeah. Um, but his, like I was I, saying earlier, his reaction to it, to me, kind of takes this movie to another level of... of mm. It's so interesting that he recoils and runs away from it. That's, you know, what he physically yeah, does. It's, you know, it's, a, it's kind of... This is, again, the choice the choice to age him to make him a teenager who's going through puberty is it, it kind of overrules the problems of doing that mm-hmm. in scenes like this because tied up with his kind of puberty narrative is him discovering that he's the antichrist at the same time 
Sure. So it's the perfect time in his life to be exploring this idea. Yeah, right, right, right. Uh, like, it's very clear when he's looking for his the mark on his head in the compact, the makeup compact. Yeah. To me, that screamed of, like, puberty and, you know, when you find a pimple or, you know, you're discovering hair where there was not hair. No, before. absolutely, right. To, 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 to quote to quote the Simpsons, the, uh, the puberty <laughs> PSA in The Simpsons. Hair where there was no hair before. Yeah. Um, it seems like it's all tied up, so it's a really interesting, dramatic, thematic way of, of him discovering that. And, of course, the first thing he does is try to run away from his fate. Mm-hmm. Which is an in, such an interesting idea. Like making him afraid of his origins is kind of like it's anti-hero. We're still in the seventies, so sure, Damien's right, still right. Going to be an anti-hero for a little while. Um, but I think it's interesting that this movie tries to have the audience identify with him. Yeah, definitely. Uh, in fact, you know, like I'm almost cursing the film for its efficiency at this point because. It's such a short section of the film, Damien grappling with his identity. Yeah, right, like, right. I wonder, I wonder if we spent more time on that and less less at Thorn Industries, <laughs> you know, yeah. talking about tox- feeding the world with toxic chemicals. Maybe it would it would be more successful because it, it is very, you have to do a lot in a very little amount of time. Yeah, I kind of go back and forth on that because I had I had the same notion. I like that it's short. I'm glad it's right. Exactly. But but there is an advantage to stretching it out a little more. Right. Making it a little more elastic. Because he has to. When you think about it, he has to go from you know zero to sixty very quickly. Right. I mean, yeah. the 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 last thing you're going to see of him is giving a death stare with flames behind him. So we got to get there. And we go then we go back into the factory, yeah. Because this is also, you know, this is a as well as being a, something of a disaster movie. It's also one of those late seventies, early eighties, you know, paranoid plant movies, <laughs> like the fucking China syndrome. Uh, sometimes, <laughs> but we know it's also a setup for a for an act of Satan. Of course, um, style death. Because we're gonna have in a, the form of a chemi- in the form of a chemical spill, which yeah. you know is, uh, um, and the the accident also exposes Damien's Satanism, right? It's like a way for it to come out to people in the film, right? Because he's actually visiting the plant, yeah. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> like so the reporter convenient. said, or even like Annie Marion said. Bad shit's following this kid everywhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> open up your eyes, Dad. And, but it just—it seems like these acts of Satan are sort of coming at thick and fast at this point. Because mm-hmm. it also takes out the doctor in the elevator. This is where we get the waste slicer. I really like that. The the showstopper body. And that's Hollywood. That's Hollywood from yeah. Mannequin. You know. Absolutely. We got Messac Taylor. It's a, you know, it's like a festival of deaths. Yeah. In the way that the first and, movie... And I, that's my, movie that's one of my notes. out a bit better. Right, I yeah. Think. That's one of my notes is that the deaths come hot and heavy in this section of the movie. Hot and heavy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I heavy. I love that the Thorne Museum of Art is showing an Edward Munch exhibition. Yeah, so it's like even the art yeah. shown to us in the world of the film is horror themed. Right. 
Um, and then we go back to the knives. We do, uh, which we haven't seen since because Warren gets the knives. The film. Yeah, uh, Charles. Uh, uh, what's that actor's name? Nicholas Pryor. Mm-hmm. So Spies with half like an hour us. to go, we're finally looping back to the knives. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, and there's there's an interesting couple of scenes in the Thorn home at this point. They're watching a horse movie in their home cinema. Um, you remember that? You remember? No. <laughs> you remember that? I no. tried to find what the film they're watching was, but I couldn't. You couldn't find it. But of course, it's a horse, which makes me think. Because the scene that the I remember film. is is the in you the know, projector room. Yeah, I mean, I remember they're them watching something. I just don't. Brother... I didn't remember specifically what they were watching. Well, I couldn't find out what yeah. they were watching. It was. I was like, is it International Velvet or Black Beauty or something mm-hmm. like that? I couldn't find out, but the fact that it's a horse, I think, is significant because of the horse-based horror of the first movie. Right. right. There is a um, a horse scene there, but it's it's again, it's like a plot convenience because then you can have the scene where his brother's overhearing him in the projector room. Right. So that's what I was going to say. It's reverse engineering the denouement of the film where the mm-hmm. brother is. And knows that he's Satan. Yeah. Knows that he's the Antichrist. And I think it's a... I think it's the best acting from the kids in the whole movie is when yeah. they're together in that scene. They're so good. Given their given their age... Given their yeah, right. And, and the kind of terrible acting we're used to. From right, yeah, exactly. Harry Potter! Um, I think they're great. <laughs> Such an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I don't think Damien has to work hard to kill up, work that hard, this hard to kill off his family because the amount of meat that the Thorn family are consuming, <laughs> they're gonna die of. Do a man any moment. Prematurely, anyway. Corned beef, barbecue. Yeah. They're just like stuffing meat into their faces until it kills them. Isn't there that moment in that fight where Damien says, "Come with me," and his brother says, "No." Yes. I remember it, that being really affecting, like a well, really great moment. But that's that's one of those great um, Bible moments, right? Yeah, right, because right. It's literally an inversion of Jesus and his disciples. Sure. And I mean, it's not by a river catching fish, but it's it's no it's no fisher of men, right? right. <laughs> yeah, I took religious studies at school, but it's. It's great. I mean, it's definitely the undercurrent of that, right? It's relating to and the and an audience like most of the audience who are going to see this have uh, you know Sunday school upbringings, so this stuff is going to play to them in a way that it wouldn't necessarily now, where faith is much more of a mosaic mm-hmm. or an optional part of society for a lot of people. Well, in certain parts of America. Um, but but certainly in 78, people are going to be instantly like, Mark's gospel, Mark's gospel, this is yeah, the yeah, fisher yeah. of men. Right. So, but, so it's almost like, it's like what Tarantino does with cult movies, but with the Bible. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and then, of course, the, the, the second undertone of that is Cain and Abel. Yeah, of course, yeah. sort of brothers. Um, so there's a religiosity throughout the story that's unconnected with the devil. Well, it's I mean, just like this is stuff from you know they're they're taking literally taking pages out of the Bible. Yeah, 
to stage I, the drama. I think that aspect of all of these movies is one of the most interesting thing about them, to take mm-hmm. the religiosity of America and then put that on its head and use it against an audience for a horror yeah. film. And arguably the and, best And they film. do it unabashedly. Like, you know, it, they're, yeah. it, like religion is so prevalent in all of the movies. I find that fascinating about these movies. I think it's such a cool turn. I think the third one is the, is the least sophisticated with that. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree with that. But like I said, for some reason, I still... It's fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah I just... It's fun and silly. This film has some nuance. Weirdly, Omen 4 has that same nuance. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because the filmmaking is not what I would describe as nuanced. And yet right. Yeah, the content exactly. is. Right. <clears throat> but in this film, I think they go hand in hand. I think there's a... Um, there, there is... There, there, are, there is... Am- and also, it's a late 70s movie, so ambiguity is is kind of almost baked in. Yeah. <laughs> like, in a way that it looks like by 78, no filmmaker has a problem. I mean, this is the director of Magnum Force. The guy's yeah, right. what he's fucking, fucking doing with anti-heroes. <laughs> yeah, sure. And that comes through here. Not to mention some of this is directed by Mike Hodges. You know, Get Carter is probably the quintessential anti-hero movie. Of course. Flash Gordon, the villains are more interesting than the heroes. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah but definitely. Uh, Planet of the, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, I guess, is similar. It's like, it's like who's side well, are we on? Well, can't, you can't say those villains aren't interesting. Well, you, you, you also, you know, it's also like, you know, that, that, that film, there's no heroes in that. Yeah, right. <laughs> no one reaches Hero the less. hero in Beneath the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> Uh, you want to take another break? Yeah, let's do it. We're starting to get into the into the doom on, and I have a yeah. lot, a lot to say, and also a lot of questions because I don't necessarily understand everything that happens at the end of the film. I'm not sure I'm the right person to answer. <laughs> but we'll, we'll I just di- want a confirmation that I'm not missing something huge. Okay. <laughs> it's funny. I have similar notes. Okay, there we go then. Yeah. I think we're both. I think we're both right in our ignorance. Okay. Good. We'll we'll sort that out when we come back. Right after this. If you like podcasts like I do, boy, do I have a treat for you. You need to stay on target and check out the Sounds and Cinema podcast. Listen as your host, sound designer and music creator, Tony Parham, and co-host, musical performer and sound lover, Derek Hansen, D-Rock if you're nasty, and I am, discuss all things sound related to film, television, stage, and theatrical productions. They discuss environmental sounds, bioacoustics, dialogue, the nature of communication through sound, but as an added bonus, they drink beer and try to... Stay on target! Find them wherever you get your podcasts and listen to the pure mania of a man who can charitably be described as Doug, the dog from Up, and another man with a soothing and sultry voice trying to get that man to... Stay on target! That's the Sounds and Cinema Podcast. Tune in and listen to the sounds they are creating just for you. And we're back once again, ladies and gentlemen, finishing up with Damien, Omen 2. 
the 46% Rotten Tomatoes movie. Mm. They're always fucking shit up. This movie's more yeah. interesting than 46%. Yeah, re- revisit that. And, you know, as we know, sequels are only getting worse. Right, right. <laughs> now, there's a part of me that, because we, I mean, we, we mentioned how uh, murder-heavy this portion of the film was before we get <laughs> yeah. to the end here. Yeah. Yes. But I just kind of want to backtrack a little bit. At least to mm. Dr. Kane's murder with the with the cutting in half. Yes. Because like I said, I think this was the moment I fell in love with the movie. And I think it's such a great late 70s piece of body horror. The way it's shot. Because mm. it's, it's schlocky. Mm-hmm. But still... Pretty... Like, it's got, it's got a good amount of fright to it. I agree. I think the they're trying to they're trying to make it more than simply body horror. Mm-hmm. But they're capturing that the flavor of that as well. Yeah, right. Um, and then and in that way, I think it's very successful sequel filmmaking. Right, exactly. And there's one other thing that I think we kind of left on the floor at this portion of the film because we're at Thorn Industries a lot. We talked about. You know, uh, what's his name? Passerian. Passerian's death, and mm-hmm. you know, because Passerian's talking to uh, what's his name, Paul. He's talking to Paul about yes. the murders, and of course, Paul's working for Damien, so he's got to yeah. go. But there's a real kind of uh, espionage feel to this portion of the film too, because it's yes. all happening at the highest levels of their corporate entity. Yeah. That I think, you know, again, I kind of it leans itself towards that Reagan era, yeah, side of things that to me is you know prescient and kind of interesting that I really like about that particular portion of the movie. I agree, and it's kind of even by the end of the second film, there's a level of self awareness that even the characters have mm-hmm. because the <laughs> great scene with William Holden uh, dodges a crane. Yeah, as right. It passes. And it's this acknowledgement that even the characters in the movie are now aware of the formula of these acts of act of Satan accidents. Yeah, right. So let me ask um, you this, because I mean, we're we're getting to it. We're getting towards the end, and we've yeah. barely mentioned William Holden at all. Yeah. So well, I find that I mean, in itself kind of interesting. But it goes back to yeah. I mean, some of it is you know that there's. Usually, when we're we're talking about a a surrogate, we're talking about how they do or don't match up to the original actor and or character in the role. With William Holden, that's not really a question, is it? I mean, he's a right. you know, he's one of the great the Hollywood greats. Of course, he's going to be up there with Gregory Peck. Oh yeah. Um, but the movie's definitely he doesn't carry the movie in the same way Peck did. I don't think. Because we're only at just at this point, he's only now becoming active in the, in the in the detective in the, work. Yeah, right. Yeah, he's quite passive for a long time. Yeah, he's there's the a, there, going, you know, there, he's just the guy going, no, no, you got it all wrong for like three at quarters least an hour. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> do you? So, but do, don't you think? It, it, do you think that's deliberate to set this movie off against you know to do something different from the first movie? 
I think there's just more going on. Yeah, more that's subplots, true. plot strands. You've obviously got the added element that Damien is now a semi-adult, so he's going to have his own subplot in the way that he didn't in the original yeah, movie. Yeah, that's true. You know, he was just being, you know, it was just whoever was looking after him, the story was about them. Yeah. So, um, that, and you know, if you think about Beneath the Planet of the Apes as well, what does James Franciscus do? He just goes through the motions of what Charlton Heston did in, yeah, in, the, sure. in the previous movie. That's kind of what's going on here, right? Yeah. So it just seems less But we remarkable. have to get through it quicker. So, you know, at yeah. least this movie knows that. Yeah, and, and his, but, you know, because you cast someone like William Holden, there's not this great big grey peck shaped hole in the middle of the movie. Yeah, no, of course. That's the that's the difference, I think. Um. I love that Damien is the valedictorian of his military school class. <laughs> because that, you know, it cements the idea that, you know, if if you get the wrong person in charge of an institution like that, you 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 know, you could give birth to a, to a new era of fascism. Sure, of course, like, yeah. Like the idea of everyone sort of saluting him. Well, cuz earlier in the so movie like there's that scene where he's showing off in history class by mentioning what disaster after disaster or or armies destroying well, armies he, or whatever it is well it's no i mean it's a really interesting example that he that he picks it's napoleon's invasion of russia okay which was which was the plan that hitler used to invade russia and it failed both times because they they did yeah 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 right to death so the you know two two examples of military dictator evil Historically, it's very clear what the film is going for. There, it's like yeah. this is if Damien if, if Damien continues to wield to to get into the power institutions this way, he will become another Hitler, another Napoleon. Yeah. So it's beautifully, it's a beautifully chosen example to illustrate where the film is going thematically. I finally got caught, Tom. It's been so long since we watched this film. <laughs> Why would you? <laughs> <laughs> I don't I, think that's necessarily the most memorable part of the film, but I remember really liking that moment of the film, but I couldn't yeah. remember exactly what it was he was talking about. Sure. Um It's so that you know, there's also also in these scenes and this is very 1970s as well at his graduation party where he's surrounded by women like surrounded by mm-hmm. women of his age and older who are sort of kind of uh I don't know obviously being the valedictorian of your military school class means that the women you get a harem. kind of flock to you. Yeah, you right. get a, exactly. Um and I thought this was kind of like a fun albeit 1970s way to play with the idea of, you know, the satanic imagery that Yeah, right. this idea of like lust and and vice surrounding him. Because he's, you know, it's almost like a Bond villain at this point. He's sort of like, yeah, right. there's, even a, there's, there's even a ladies leave us moment. You know, there's a, there is like a, in here where, you know, he's chatting to all these women and he's called over and he's like, I'll be back ladies. And, yeah. Oh my God. But he should be petting a cat. On? Yes, completely. And then th- this is what I meant about unanswered questions, at least for me. Okay. When his mother is revealed to sort of be one of his followers. Yeah. I can't now. Now I forget that this is the twist every time I see this film. Okay. 
<laughs> so I always forget to check whether this stands up to scrutiny. I'm pretty sure it doesn't. Well, I'm pretty sure if you track the mother throughout the movie, as we know, I had not watched these up. movies until I watched them for this podcast. And did you suspect? You know what? I want I want to say I might have ruined it for myself as I was like reading IMDb notes before yeah. the movie, which really disappointed me. But like you like you just said, I I wasn't sure that there was any like breadcrumbs leading to that. No. Yeah. I think it isn't doesn't something similar happen in Magnum Force with with the boss who's revealed yeah. to be a yeah in charge of the I think this last yeah I think that's the director possibly has problems with last minute plot twists. <laughs> Um, except Beneath the Planet of the Apes, which is one of the greatest last-minute plot twists of all time in cinema. Um, yeah, so I, I have a faint suspicion that if you track the whole her her activ you know like her activities in the whole movie, it doesn't stand up. Mm-hmm. It's a, I mean, it's a fun moment. Um, but I also, do, you know, you know it, give, I, it gives I, us a nice in, it gives us an inversion of the original. Movie. I'll say this. Because uh, I think I read about it beforehand, but when it pops up and when it happens, I still went, ooh, you know, I still Yeah, went, it's a surprise. It's a genuine you know, surprise. It is a genuine surprise. And, and so, I don't know, in that way. Know, it's using surrogacy. Right. Um, in against an interesting you. Way. Yeah, against you, exactly. <laughs> yeah. In the same way that the dagger is supposed to go in Damien and it ends up going in the person who's wielding it. Sure. Which is clearly supposed to be as another inversion. Um, you, I, there's you know, another the MacGuff- thing. The MacGuffin becomes the MacGuffy. Yeah. <laughs> there's another thing in these it. movies in which one person has to be convinced that's not related, like not the parents, hmm. and they take it on very quickly, and they kind yes. of go mad with it. What do you well, think about that? that- it all boils down to that um, uh, that <laughs> painting of of the Antichrist, yeah, and how much it looks like Damien, right? And I'm always interested that the films. I saw of... Damien's face in the wall. Yeah, and it, it's kind of interesting because it, it it seems like it's you know that that is not necessarily the smoking gun. Uh, yeah, I, they think I, exactly. I I don't think the so either. The smoking gun is that he has six 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 on his head. Sure. <laughs> grab so grab him, hold him down, and everywhere he goes, people die. Yeah. Not so it's much like, the face on the wall. Yeah. It's like oh six six six. You know, but the fact that you know historically he looks like the Antichrist, given that you know it's a kid kids kind of look the same right exactly <laughs> i thought the same thing i i i remember just think my note was that i think they just put way too much stock into that idea i guess cuz it's so visual right yeah, like it's right. so like it's such a good reveal of it's such a shock moment but what i wrote um, down was i'm sure there's 7000 kids that look like that yeah. picture on that wall you know right um, could be anybody. Yet, you know, anybody. And it reminds me that these films are sort of that 
the reason I think they go with that instead of the 666 on the scalp is that they have to dance around the ease with which you could prove that Damien is the Antichrist. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, like I say, you could literally grab him, hold him down, look at his head. That's all you got to do. That's all you got to do. So the film has to find narrative ways to work against that or the film will be over in seconds. Sure. So I think that's why they don't go with the with the with the 666 and why they go with uh that old painting kind mm-hmm. of looks like Damien <laughs> at this age. <laughs> Which again is is that's like what well, the painting was done of the antichrist at that exact age. Right. It doesn't work. Now um I mean, this is going back a little bit, but is you know we talked earlier about Damien running away from learning who he is mm-hmm. and his purpose. Is yeah. there a transition to him accepting? No. Okay, I didn't think so. Either. No, it's all resolved in that one sequence, right? Which is what I'm saying about like there needs that doesn't need to be. It's fine, but it could benefit from be that sequence could either benefit from being a little bit longer or at least the inner conflict could yeah. be stretched out a bit more. Um but it feels just like something the film has to kind of go through the motions of. Right. So we can carry on with the movie. Okay. Yeah, those are those are there are some lingering things within this movie that um and that's one of them. Yeah, where I I knock it down a small peg or two, but yeah, agreed. I think it, it. I think compared to the to the other two films, I think this is this is the most character complexity that we get, at least with Damien. Yeah, but for sure, even that there's there's this kind of time limit on that. We've got to get to the next act of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got to get to the knives. <laughs> no, we talked earlier. I was we've just saying half, we've got half an hour left. We've right. got to get back to these knives. Charles Warren is the one that gets the knives. And I, 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 I was thinking just a minute ago. I was like, we haven't gotten back to the arc of the knives yet, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> um. But now, like you said, they try to stab Damien and end up stabbing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, themselves, right? Or himself. Themselves, yeah. So this movie ends with an impasse. Right. A pretty good one. Yeah, I agree. Uh, also, you know, I guess I guess nothing is going to beat the death count of Beneath the Planet of the Apes. But, <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> but let's in, 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 let's say in other Don Taylor films where the Earth is not destroyed... It's a pretty high death count. <laughs> sure. And, you know, just burning an entire museum down. Yeah. I love that this film ends with a Bible quote. Because it's hard to imagine anyone. <laughs> anyone's not on board at this point. With the yeah, right. The, the, exactly. The Bible is the basis of this film. Yeah, but they do, all of of like, they do that with all of them. They do that with all of them. You know? I know, but it it would be hilarious if there's someone with a minute left in the movie and they see that quote and they see that Bible verse and, and go, "Oh, I see <laughs> the Bible." <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> I get it, it now. 
it half so you're makes saying me these are that... kind of vaguely religious. <laughs> and it half makes me think that maybe that was some kind of like test screening note that this film got. <laughs> right. Because in the next film, like Bible verse is the first thing you see. Yeah, right right at the top. Like straight in. <laughs> so it's, it's like there, there's a note from the producers. Eh, we, you know, we're, Put it at the we top. We need to be more upfront <laughs> about how much the Bible yeah. is in these films. That's fantastic. Um, I mean, last notes, Any anything else? No, that's it. That's all I have. Credit check? Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, Raven Trainer. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty high up on the credits. You're right. It's like a film where certain key roles are those that would be further down in other movies. <laughs> uh, Israeli Motion Picture Service. So not only did not only were, were those scenes in Israel done by a completely different director, seems like all a completely different film crew as well. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> that is, you could almost say it's a it's a mini movie in its own right. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's and got a resurrection feel. It does a Halloween and resurrection think, you know, feel. Say the, say the same that I did then about about that. Um, that probably in the in the internet age that scene would have been a a kind of viral short mm-hmm. the cold open of this movie to bridge the two movies yeah it right probably would have started proper with the with the william holden um part um only one cop in the chicago police service is thanked okay is this a backhand is this a backhanded way of saying that that the Chicago police as an institution were unhelpful. Like, well, there was this one guy who was on it. The Frank. Rest of them... Frank was was great. Yeah. Frank really helped, but everyone he worked with, not so good. <laughs> they kept asking for bribes. I was surprised to find that possible. I mean, I don't know how this is possible and certainly not true of the of the either the previous film or the next film. But none of this was filmed in Britain. Yeah, right. Which makes the British Damien's British accent even more baffling. <laughs> I I was you know I was convinced I it would be it would say the Pinewood or Elstree in the credits, and it's neither. It is baffling because you have to you know he was so young when Mom one and Dad died, so he went right. to the U.S. young. Yeah, and then you know, and in, in the next film. It's confusing because people are talking with British accents and you're like, okay, uh, but, but are they in America or are they in London? Then you right. find that they're yeah. in London. It's like, okay, that's why they have British accents. It still doesn't explain why right. <laughs> Damien is British. Uh, I like that there's a final choral sting after the credits are done. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like the audio equivalent of a final scare, but done entirely with the soundscape. Right. I like it a lot. That's all I have. That's my credit check. All right. Well played. Uh, yeah, short and sweet. For me. Done. Yeah. <laughs> Most people don't pay that much attention to the credits. This is a, this is a lighter one, lighter credit check for there me. There you go. <laughs> I seem to recall the last few. All right, uh, strap in. We got a lengthy one. That's not my <laughs> fault. That's the credits' fault. Super There's a lot of credits. Movie. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> but also, I mean, I suppose that speaks to how short credits were even in that period because mm-hmm. I think with all the other Don Taylor movies we've done <laughs> yes. like 20 seconds of credits oh man alright um, that's it ladies and gentlemen 
Damien Omen 2 is in the books. <laughs> Coming up next, well, I guess it's really called The Final Conflict. Eventually, it was called Omen 3, The Final Conflict. Well, and... just just before, yeah, because we, we, we're going to talk about that in the next episode, but we didn't really talk about Damien Omen 2. Yeah, right. Does this suffer from, suffer from the first blood problem? Yes, that's exactly it, actually. It's the same. It's the same formula, right? It's the, mm-hmm. <laughs> the absolutely the name name of lead name character that, followed that by the title the that you originally had. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But this pre First Blood. You're right. So technically, technically. So, uh, so Stallone learned Rambo, no lessons. He must not have watched these movies. Yeah, Rambo is pulling a an omen. A pu- pulling an omen. Pulling a Damien. Yeah. That'd be a good death match. Rambo versus Damien. It's just it's so it's so interesting to me that I like it's got to be like a clue to the to the audience, I suppose. Does it mean that Damien's going to be more front and center, front and center than he was in the first movie? I, I think guess Rambo it could be that. it also could first be Blood is all about Rambo. Yeah. It also could be as simple as now that everybody knows Damien is dangerous and and like it might just be a a clue into hey come see what Damien's up to like he's he's well, going to he's going to be up to some the shit the further the further adventures of Damien Yeah exactly yeah which is you know. definitely the the Rambo part is like I know he you know he originally he was supposed to commit suicide but he's back but he's back and and so what I'm wondering is maybe they thought that people knew the name Damien more than they knew the omen. I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, right? it's it's a it's a shorthand for the audience. Right. It's like, you you know the omen? No, I don't remember the omen with Damien. Damien. Oh, Damien. Yes. <laughs> right. Right. I like it. Well, coming up next, Sam Neil. Is involved. Yes, our first glimpse, our first and last glimpse at adult Damien. There you go. <laughs> All right, boy, boy did boy did they cast that well. Yeah, look look forward to that coming to you soon. For Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions, Michael Schantz here of the How Dare You Awards. Like we said, when you hear us next, it's Omen Three: The Final Conflict, or just the Final Conflict. No matter how you slice it, it's the, final conflict, the final conflict. That's not the final conflict. <laughs> Say goodbye to everybody, Tom. Damien was not affected by the gas. Dun dun dun. Dun. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that must. Be, I, I tell you, it, I think that I think they're they're talking about the amount of gas that's in the Thorn home after eating all that meat. <laughs> It was the late seventies, Tom. That's what we did. I, that they they could rename that estate Fart Town, probably. <laughs> That's what they should have done: is be like, Damien is somehow not affected by all of, <laughs> by all this all meat, the, all the stinking gas. He's not affected by around. any of this meat. Yeah. 
His are his arteries are clear. Must be <laughs> Satan. Right. He, he still doesn't have heart issues, even <laughs> though we've been shoving corned beef down his throat for seven years. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Until next time. Thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you.